You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In 2018, when I stopped using just about every social media platform out there and instead started to focus exclusively on using Instagram, that's when I came across the work of Asha Frost. What appealed to me about Asha's work is that it aligns a lot with my own. Both Asha and I are women who have had colonial violence interrupt our lineages. And just like me, Asha approaches her work in a gentle and tender way, even despite the violence and genocide which exists in her family tree. As I continue to follow her work, I became very interested in how she's able to protect her work away from those who would choose to steal it and extract it and plunder it. Something that as women of color, and in particular Black for myself and Indigenous for Asha, it's something that we are constantly having to deal with. Asha has an immense amount of grace and it exudes from her work. She's often sharing about the different ways that she heals, which helps her to hold space for the mainly white women who follow her work and hire her so that they can heal their bloodline as well. And while Asha and I do share a lot of similarities, Asha also brings a uniqueness that is rather interesting to learn and to know about. She's not afraid to share the vulnerabilities about her own journey. And she's bold enough, even in her quiet and tender way, to raise awareness about the ways in which colonial violence can still harm not only indigenous people, but also the descendants of those same colonial powers. After meeting Asha in person at my workshop that I held in Toronto in November 2019, I decided that I would get into a deeper conversation with her around cultural appropriation, around colonial violence, around how to prevent the theft of one's medicine tools, and also to find out more about the ways in which she's able to hold space for others without re-traumatizing herself. Let me tell you a little bit more about Asha. Asha Frost is an Ojibwe medicine healer, mentor, space holder, and seer. Her life's work is to help you connect to the medicine that has always been within you. Asha believes that if you are drawn to indigenous medicine ways, that you too have power and beauty in your own lineage waiting to be discovered. You can find out more about Asha by going to ashafrost.com. Asha, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And so, I'm sharing in the introduction that you've been a patron in my community for some time. And we met when you came out to one of my workshops. And I've been following your work, of course. So it's like we nourish each other. 
in different ways and at different moments. And so the question I love to start off with before all my guests is this, who are the ancestors, both living and passed on, both familial and ideological, Mm -hmm. who influence you in your body of work today? I love that question. The ancestors that influence me are Anishinaabe ancestors. So both of my lineages are Anishinaabe. So from like a familial standpoint, they are ancestors that lived all across Ontario from First Nations all across Ontario. So those are the ones that actually influence me from like a spiritual standpoint as well, because I am in contact with some of the medicine people that were ancestors of mine that helped me in my healing work, that come to me in my dreams and my visions and sort of speak to me in those ways, in those spirit ways. So they tend to sort of overlap a little bit in that I know of them in my lineage and I know of them in the spirit world. And that's who I'm connected to the most. Thank you for sharing. And as we look at the ancestors, it's work that I've recently done myself mm. in understanding not only who is in my family tree, but also the names of those individuals as mm. well. Mm-hmm. Why is it so important for us to acknowledge our ancestors? Oh my goodness. I feel like it's very, very important. I feel like they're the ones that held the vision for us. I feel like from a spiritual standpoint, they're the ones that hold the support for us. They're the ones that offer us healing. They're the ones that also went through so much of the, I guess, the trauma and the things that were really challenging. So for me, I guess they represent resilience and I draw from that every day. And they represent the wisdom of the ages and all of the traditional ways for my people. They represent all of that knowing and that, that rooted wisdom that is carried on today. So I believe they're really, really important. They're a really important part of my daily practice and my daily existence. Yes. We're going to look deeper into your body of work because part of what you do is you help those with a settler and colonial background Mm -hmm. to heal. And I'm someone who has both the blood of the oppressed and the oppressors in my tree. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I mean, I'm talking about it now. Let's dig deeper into that. Your work, again, helps us heal and helps and and use different medicine tools to do so. Mm -hmm. How do you help those who have such violence in their lineage? How do you help them to heal and move beyond that? That's a really great question because I feel like shame is really a big barrier to healing. And I feel like many folks get stuck in that shame place. And I understand that. I think we have to acknowledge all of the history and acknowledge what comes with that. So I think the first step, I just take folks step by step through acknowledging and seeing and really, instead of sort of pushing it away, like really feeling into it and being with it and sitting with it. And I think that's a really hard thing for us humans to do in general, but that's part of the healing work. How can we sit with the truth? How can we feel it in our bodies? How can we feel what's still sitting there? How can we honor those shame, that shame or that disappointment or that anger or all of those emotions that come up first and foremost versus suppressing it, oppressing it, lashing out at other people, being violent at other people, being racist, 
So I think that acknowledgement is the first step. And that's where I feel like I take folks first to that place and then moving them into a compassionate space where they can have compassion for themselves and then really do the work to unravel all of the bias, all of the work that you do, all of the inherent bias that we carry, all of the racist thoughts that we carry, like going into that with a, from a state of compassion and self-love, I think, because that's where it starts to shift. And when we're in shame, I've just seen it over and over again. When we're in shame, then we move to defensiveness. And that just doesn't get us anywhere. Being on the other end of that a lot. I can see that doesn't get us anywhere. Yes, absolutely. I often see this. I mean, there's two opposing forces. There's a force or there's some who come in. And like you said, it starts off with a bit of shame and there's no acknowledgement of it. And then there's this anger and rage. And I'm sure you've heard the messaging, which is forget about the past and other really harmful scripts yes. that are said to remove themselves or suppress the conversation. Yeah. And then the opposite end is someone who's just like, oh my gosh, I'm a fifth generation colonizer and I'm so horrible and I'm disgusting. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm laughing only because of the voice I'm using, not because of the statements that are being made. But I see them both rooted in the same thing, which is centering themselves. Mm-hmm. And why is that not a good approach? Oh goodness, I just feel that that does so much harm. It does so much harm because really then you're just taking the focus away from the real issue. And that happens all the time. I experience that all the time, the centering themselves. So I think that just really, you are separating yourself from the issue then. And then you are just, I guess it's almost for me, it's always like a body feeling. So to me, that will make me shake or my heart will sink. I guess I I speak to things more and like how the trauma gets reactivated in my own body when I see someone centering themselves. And it's almost re-traumatizing for the person of color. Yes. What do you do to protect yourself from that harm that comes from someone who's centering themselves, centering their shame, centering their anger as a way to dismiss the conversation? Mm. I use medicine. (laughs) I use a lot of medicine. If I'm going into a conversation or I'm looking at, say, Instagram comments or emails, I will be burning smudge at that time because I need to clear off the energy that does feel like it'll make me shake or re-traumatize me. I use a lot of practices, I guess, where I'm like, you know, wearing my moccasins or I will drum after. I need to get it out of my body because it will definitely stir something up. So boundaries are also really important, but it's something I'm still learning, I'll be honest as a sensitive person and I can feel them really easily. So I need to set boundaries and step away. I'm not the best at blocking people yet. (laughs) So I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm learning, learning from folks like you, teachers and guides and how they do this work every day because it, it takes a toll energetically and physically. And I have to really put myself first. And I've forgotten to do that many times. Yes. It's incredible how our boundaries, and even me, sometimes I'm surprised at how there can be boundary leaks. Yeah. And you have mentioned a couple times about the body and how you can feel different things moving through your vessel. Mm -hmm. And so why is it so important that as we heal, that we include the body? Oh my goodness. I just feel like, I guess I was a homeopath for 17 years. So I saw the impact of emotional 
energy is getting stuck and how that can manifest into physical symptoms or illness. And I deal with that myself. I have lupus. So it's been a journey of really unlocking those things and going through the threads of how trauma has impacted my physical body. So I think our physical bodies give us that first sign that something is off or something needs to be looked at or acknowledged. So when we talk about even what we're not acknowledging with speaking about race or, you know, the colonization and oppression and all those things, I think when we ignore our body signs, then we're kind of leaping over that first sign that something needs to be said here. Something needs to be healed here. Something needs to be addressed here. I feel like our bodies always tell us first. And I think that in our society, generally, we like to suppress those things because we don't want to feel it. So that's why I feel that honoring our body signs is really important. And we all have it. I believe we all have that ability to say, oh, my chest feels tight here. What's going on? Or my breath feels like it's been taken away. What just happened? Some of us may be more than others, but that's how it impacts me. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that mindset training is not enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This idea that you can change your mind and change your life. Yeah, but if it doesn't include the body, what have you actually changed? Yes, yes. And I've been working for the last couple of months really on my nervous system, like working on some somatic therapy. And it's really helped me with those boundaries and really figuring out what is mine, what is not mine. So I'm going even deeper in that body awareness. And it's been so powerful. So I agree with you. Just using our mind is not going to heal us. One of my shamanic teachers once said, like, your mind is not going to heal you. That's not what's going to heal you. And I've always lived by that. Yeah. <laughs> When doing this work in helping others heal the racial trauma and the other systemic oppressions that harm us all, I try not to pass any judgment or look at someone and make a judgment about who they are. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I know that that's something that you don't do either. But is there signals? Like, could you look at someone and say, yeah, this is someone that needs to heal? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it the way they walk, the way they look? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I ultimately believe we all, we all need healing and we all have our stuff, right, Rob? Yes, we do. (laughs) Work through that. But I guess the first thing that comes to mind is, like, I'm actually thinking about appropriation this way because people would say, like, what really makes you shake or what really gets you really, what puts you into that trauma state? And it would just be, I think, that lack of consciousness or just this sort of, like, disconnect to... I don't know, to your actions, I guess. Like if somebody's waving a smudge wand on Instagram and they're just kind of waving it around for likes and popularity, I would definitely say that's a sign to me that there's some healing needed there. So it's sort of a very clear, that's what would kind of really amplify that for me is when I guess I sort of feel like that's doing harm. So there needs to be healing there. But ultimately, I believe that we all need to be doing some healing work in our lives. And so you had mentioned before that you have lupus. Yes. Was that what helped to propel you into becoming a healer? Yes, that was everything. I was diagnosed when I was 17 and I was really disconnected from who I was. Like I really wanted to assimilate because there was a lot of racism against Indigenous people. Just all the microaggressions and everything that was said. I did not want to be Indigenous as a teenager or a young child. It didn't seem like a good thing, but lupus just, it just like crumbled all of that apart and reconnected me to my ancestors. And I'd been a dreamer and a seer and a visionary my whole life, but I just 
kind of ignored it and thought, oh, everybody experiences this. And when I got diagnosed and when I got sick, it was like my ancestors came flooding in and they said, there is a different way to heal. And we have it, you have it in your blood, in your bone memory, it's here for you. So it it just put me on this incredible journey that still continues and will continue to the last day. It's sad that it took a diagnosis such as that to bring you back to your ancestors. Mm -hmm. I believe that within each of us, there is that inner guidance that when we do this healing work, then somehow our words, our actions, everything vibrates at Mm -hmm. this frequency that is unique to us and our ancestral wisdom. Mm. And I think it's so powerful. And that's what so many people miss. Yes, they do. And that's, I mean, I notice that so much for people wanting to focus loving Indigenous medicine. I understand because I think it's a craving for all of us to connect to the power. And I believe we all have that inner ancestry. We do. It's just somehow we've lost that connection. But even I lost the connection. So I always say that, like, I understand that because I was there too. And so much has been lost from my lineage and so much has been lost from my ancestors. It's painful to reclaim. It's painful to move through the trauma. That's what folks don't always understand when they take, like when they just take the pretty, they don't understand how much of a journey it is just to reclaim one teaching and bring it back. Yes, yes. And so... We're going to dig deeper into the medicine tools that you use as part of your healing practice. Mm. And in particular, I want to dig deeper into a couple of blog posts that you posted and get more of a background on that. Mm-hmm. But we're going to take a quick break. I'm in conversation with Asha Frost, Indigenous medicine woman, and we'll hear more from her after this sponsored message. Hey, it's Elizabeth Purvis, and I am a longtime business coach in the online transformation space. And I'm just so excited to be making a short video here about Lisa's inner field trip work. So I have known Lisa for a really long time. And in fact, this is pretty relevant for why I work with her and why I really recommend inner field trip. I have known Lisa for probably a solid 10 years now if not actually more, it's at least 11. I met her when I was just starting out. Our paths crossed. It was like our paths crossed on Twitter and I was scared. I was new. I didn't have any confidence. I felt like I was a fish out of water in a lot of ways. And I didn't want to screw up a lot of things. And I just remember back then, and she was teaching on other stuff back then. She's gone through a lot of changes, of course. But even back then, she was so good at holding space for all those feelings. And she was so good at connecting. And you know that people say like, you forget (laughs) what people say to you, but you don't forget how they make you feel. Lisa's one of those people. And when I found out that she was doing inner field trip later, when she was doing anti-racism, anti-bias, anti-oppressive work, dismantling systemic racism within ourselves. I was like, thank goodness. Not just because I'd known her for a while, right? That helps, but it let me know. Like I already knew how she was going to be with it. And it helped me so much 
to be able to say yes to doing the work. And for white women, this is like the first biggest piece, right? We have to say yes to it in the first place. And there's other amazing anti-racism, anti-bias, anti-oppression advocates and educators. And everyone's got their own vibe. And when I was first starting to dip my toe into this work and really, because it was so important to me to do it, but it was so confronting. And there's no getting around that. Like you got to sit with it, right? But I'm like, I need a guide who can just be with me and who's not going to let me off the hook, but isn't going to shame me into next week, which is not everybody's style. And some people, they need a little bit of the other thing, but like, I don't, you know, it doesn't work. I close down. So that was a big reason why I joined Lisa's community. It was just like, an oh, yo, yes. And that's one of the reasons why I recommend her work to our clients, because she does create a space where we can not be comfortable all day, but like the squishy, critter, nervous system part of me, like I was able to relax and be present. And that's so, so important. And then on top of that, just her process, this inner field trip process, again, it's very private, very confronting. She has a way of asking the kinds of questions that help you unpack and asking the kind of questions that get to the heart of it, right? Because if we're going to do this work, like we've got to go there. And what allows us to go there are the questions in the way that they're asked. I mean, she's just really, really masterful at that. For me, uncovering my unconscious biases, unpacking my whiteness and unpacking my systemic racism and really having my eyes opened to just the crazy amounts of bias that's just baked in, right, to my being and who I am and who I was and all of that. It was non-negotiable for me, like with what I do. And you can look at my website to get more of a sense of what I do, but it was just, it was absolutely non-negotiable. And I feel in the transformation space, especially, it's non-negotiable. If we're going to be the leaders that we say we are, there's no hiding from this. And there's no like, do it later. There's no sticking your head in the sand, not because of how your community is going to respond, not because of how you're going to look, but because if we want to be a stand for shifting consciousness on this planet and be a stand for the collective healing, like it's just, you got to do it. And everyone's going to find their way and everyone's going to find how they're going to do it. So it's a very personal process. And on that personal process, you want a guide who can hold space for you while at the same time, really calling you to task in that kind of loving way of like, there's no getting out of this and we're in it together. And that's the space that Lisa holds. And that's why I recommend Inner Field Trip. And that's why I've been a Patreon since 2018 or something. (laughs) To wrap up here, I just really honor you. The fact that you're watching this video and you've watched my ramblings all the way to the end, that you're serious about doing this work. And I want to really commend you giving major high fives, props, snaps, and cheering you on. And you're going to be in really, really good hands. All right, blessings, much love. And we are back. We're in conversation with Asha Frost, Indigenous Medicine Woman. Asha, you wrote a blog post in July of 2019, Dear White Women Who Wants to Be Like Me. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm looking at it now at the time of this recording. It's been shared over 20,000 times. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised at the number of shares? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It blew me away. And I was not prepared. I was not prepared for that. I don't know how you can prepare yourself, but I wasn't prepared. I don't think anyone can prepare you. They all these content people who have expertise and they say, yeah, post three times a week, about 10 a.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I don't think any of them have ever had a post go viral. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I've never seen advice on how to deal with the whatever after your blog post goes viral. But what was it that you believe resonated so much? Because it's directed to white women. It's been shared over 20,000 times. What do you believe resonated? It's funny because I'm sort of thinking of all the emails I got where people did not resonate with it. (laughs) But you're right. The shares indicate that it resonated with many folks. I think that it was just a clear statement on how appropriation can harm. And I think it's through the lens of what's going on right now in sort of with social media being such a big space and how when I started my business, there was no social media. So I didn't really think about this. But then when social media came, there was a lot of appropriation happening, I think. So perhaps people, it was sort of like, a lot of people said to me, you educated me. I learned things I never thought about this before. So I think maybe it was an opening for people to start thinking about some of these issues and how it impacts Indigenous people or people who have been colonized. But I'm not quite sure. I wish I knew. (laughs) Well, I'm going to link to this blog post in the show notes for this episode. And One of the things that struck me, and I'm always fascinated by what I call scripts. Mm. It seems like there's a playbook on how to deny and minimize an oppression that someone is sharing about their lived experience. And so some of the language that you're referring to that you've heard time and time again, as you see in your blog post, is, I wish I was you. I would love to be Native. You are so lucky. I was Native in a past life. I really want a stat. This one is gross too. I really want a status card and I think I have native blood. Can you tell me how to get one? It feels just yucky. Like my body is reacting in a not in a good way. Mm -hmm. And so what do these statements tell you that white women have an absence of? I don't feel like a lot of, a lot of white women had knowing of the history. I mean, still there's so much just ignorance of our history in Canada and of what Indigenous people are living through every single day. Whenever I share anything, like, you know, there's not clean water on my grandmother's reservation all the time. They're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, that happens everywhere. Our women go missing and murdered and, and just everybody's like, what do you mean? It's just an ignorance of what's still happening. And then those statements get over the past. That's in the past. I didn't harm your ancestors. It wasn't me. Yeah. And not seeing that the impact of the that trauma continues in really insidious ways and it's impacting our people now. So I just think it's an ignorance of the history. And just as I said in that letter, wanting the beautiful things, like taking the dream catchers and the, the earrings and the smudge and all of those things. That's where it feels like a taking when you're not holding the whole picture. Right, right. And it's also focus on positivity and happiness and looking at history and, and cherry picking all the great things about history and ignoring all the trauma and the genocide and the theft and the plundering. Yes. 
So I don't think it's an accident that that's how some will approach you. Yes. Looking at all the beauty, look at what my ancestors did for your ancestors and ignoring the trauma and the violence. And then how it impacts, like, I can only speak for my generation, but my grandparents were in residential school and how it impacts like the generation below that and in that there's just so much taken away that we have to, as I spoke about that, that reclamation, that we have to reclaim through that real Catholicism. Like my grandparents are super attached to their church and their doctors and all of that colonization that sort of came in and just trying to find the ways again, which is like, it makes me emotional talking about it because I think people don't really understand how much work that is and the reasons behind that because of the trauma that was inflicted on that generation that's not even, they're still alive. We, you know, we're still alive. We're still here. I saw one comment, I remember during this time, I said, I don't even know Indigenous people still are alive. And I just, what? yeah. Oh, yeah, sometimes I can't read the comments. Because I, and I think that just speaks to how that genocide has, you know, that attempted genocide, that energy is still there. Erase you, erase you. You need to be like just erased. Wow. It's huge. It is huge. It is huge. And I read a quote by an Indigenous scholar. Mm. He had written that colonial settlers have done everything they can to exclude people of African descent from neighborhoods and just day-to-day life. Whereas for Indigenous people, that same group has done everything to include them, forcibly include them mm-hmm. by taking their children and putting them in these residential schools and so on. In your opinion, how is the African and Indigenous experience similar when it comes to colonial settler violence? Oh, goodness. I think... It's so interesting because when everything got really stirred up with the Black Lives Matter, I just felt so much, so much like solidarity. I just think that there is this connection of, and I'm not even sure from like an intellectual standpoint that I understand it, but there is similarities in the way that we've just been, I guess it's like that spirit where spirits have been decimated and the oppression just feels like, for me, I think it comes down to the spirit. That's what I can speak to just our spirits being like crushed and separated from creation. It almost feels like that. And that really like deep sense of like smushing out our worth and just like pushing us down in so many ways. So I think the oppression and suppression feels similar to me in the way that, and I can't really speak for Black voices at all, but I guess that's what I felt when Black Lives Matter came up again. And this was this big, you know, and I was watching all of the energies between the Indigenous community and the Black community and just seeing that go back and forth. I'm feeling something in my body right now as we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. So part of the spiritual heaviness I feel about the similarities in our experience is, as you said, and then there's this moment where at the same time, I have settler's privilege. Mm-hmm. And yet I come from a group of individuals where we've been disconnected from our lands forcibly. Right. For a long time, I had no idea even which ethnic group I originated from in West Africa. Mm. And so as I look at myself, someone who has settler privilege, but at the same time have all this extreme violence in my lineage, part of my struggle is how do I connect to a land that isn't originally mine Mm. and holds so much violence? 
how am I able to do this? How are you able to guide mainly white women who sign up for your programs? How do you help them connect to the land that holds so much violence committed by their ancestors? How are we able to do this? Yeah, it's a daily intentional act, I think. And and what we spoke about before, about the shame and the anger and the acknowledgement. I think the acknowledgement, you know, land acknowledgements, they're so popular now, right? So I just think like that's a start. It's a start. But I don't know if we're embodying it, to be honest. I think we're using it as words. And I think the embodiment, that's why I think as you spoke about the body, like even embodying, like, what does it mean when you're speaking these words? I'm in Anishinaabe land. What does that mean? How how does that feel when you speak that through your heart? How does it feel when you speak that through your feet, that you're actually standing here? And how does it feel when you envision what was happening before that your ancestors perhaps contributed to? So the healing work, part of that, I think there's a disconnect there right now where we're at with these acknowledgements. We need to start embodying it. And then walking, we always speak about walking the good way, the good path, which means we, we walk in the good way, you walk the red road. And I think that means just acknowledging the harm and doing some work every single day, which you help folks do in what you're offering. And I think that's such important work. That's how we're going to make change. Yeah. And like you, I anchor myself in hope. And I remember reading on one of your blog posts, love Mm. and anchoring in that. Why is it important for those of us who help others heal to anchor ourselves in love and hope? I think we need to have a vision for something. I think if we're trying to move past, heal through something, we need to have a vision of kind of where we're going through. So if we can I really believe in doing things from the heart. I believe that the folks that I work with, they are going to listen to me if I can open my heart in some way or have compassion. So that's, it's only been my experience. I can only speak from that. But the white women, because I majority, the majority of my audience is white women are non-Indigenous folks. And they're coming for some guidance in that way. And I just know, and it's not that I'm bypassing. I tell the truth. They know the harm. They know the trauma. It's just... They know it from a way where it's like, how can we see each other? How can we have a spirit connection here? Because what I've noticed is if I don't have that, then people just run away and they don't hear me. So I guess I can only speak from my experience, but that's been my experience. So speaking with hope, hope is a vision for me. It's a vision for what's to come. And I see that for my descendants and the seven generations to come. I have a vision for change. And I think that comes with hope and with love. I agree. And like you, I asked that question, not so that people can use your answer and weaponize it against Mm -hmm. others who do this work, others who see themselves as healers and other educators that help us to raise our awareness around oppression and how damaging it can be. So I think it's important, as you've said over and over, that you are one person you don't speak for all Indigenous people. You don't speak for all Indigenous medicine women. Just like I don't speak for all Black people yeah. and all anti-bias educators. But that's what's true for you. Yeah. I really have gone through a huge healing process around what my lane is and realizing to stay in my... That's what I guess the word that people use, but staying in my lane of where can I best use my energy? Because I cannot do it all. I've tried to do it all. And I wasn't of service to anyone when I tried to do that. So I've had to get really clear on, on what my lane is and what my purpose is and what my ancestors and how they guide me. So I listen to that every day. 
and then come home to that every day and root myself into that. And my lane's going to be very different than somebody else's. And, and I respect and honor those lanes so much too. So <laughs> I really do. I have so much respect for, for people doing the work in their way. Yeah, so work in their lane. So if you're only going to go at 100, stay in the far right lane on the highway. <laughs> and if you're going to do a little bit more, then you can move on over. <laughs> stay in your lane. So regarding the tools that you use to help your clients heal, to help you heal. You mentioned some of that before. Mm. Talk about what the significance is of smudging versus drumming versus singing, because you do all of these things in your workshops. Yeah. I love really being intuitively guided to use some of those. I've just been doing them for quite a long time. And somebody once told me that my ancestors come in and they guide me as to what tools to pick up. So I had a private practice for many years and I would have this medicine man come in and just guide me, use that rattle, use that shaker, it's time to drum. So much of it now is intuitively guided. However, I will, I guess smudge is used every day in my home because we use that as a medicine to cleanse and purify, to pray, to set intentions. I use that in my circles to do the same thing as I believe in the energy of that because all of my work is now online. When I drum, I use that to connect us to that heartbeat of Mother Earth to ground us if I feel like we're needing some rooting into our being and connecting to our earth bodies. Singing. I love to sing just to open up that truth and that voice. And not all folks love to sing, but that's something that I try to do for my own healing, really to continue speaking the truth that's in my heart. I use a shaker when I want to like wrestle things up when things are stagnant and they're feeling like really stuck or there's a lot of oppression or repression there. I use a shaker to get things called to the surface. There's a bunch of tools that I use. I use a lot of sort of energy work with my hands. It tends to come out. My spirit name is Healing Rainbow Woman. So it tends to come out like a rainbow. Mm -hmm. And I'll use that wherever the energy needs to be cleared. And I think I also use my vision a lot, a vision for a healed outcome. However, somebody comes to me, I try to see them, not to see them through their wounds, but to see what is the healed version for them of this. And we try to come to that together. Thank you for sharing. And also the significance of what each of these tools mean in terms of healing. And to think about drumming, I think about the shaker. And I also know that for many who will come into your space, they're going to want to take some of these instruments and mm -hmm. try to do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. What is missing if, say, a white person, white woman, one of your clients tries to do drumming on their own, tries to do smudging on their own? Mm -hmm. Is it possible for them to do that as part of their healing ritual as they continue to do that and incorporate healing into their day-to-day? -day? Or do they need to find different tools of healing that is specific to their ancestral background? Mm -hmm. I believe that... First and foremost, that we, to connect to our own ancestral background would be the most powerful. And I do believe that if you are drawn to indigenous medicine ways, that there are medicines in your own lineage that speak to this, to a similar energy. I do. And I know they're hard to find. Everybody's like, they're so hard to find. But I don't think that folks are really dedicated to doing the work to find them because the information is out there. So that would be the most powerful way to connect. And in saying that, there are white women in my community who have done mentorship with me 
who also are great allies for my work. They do the research, they know the history, they use that medicine with respect. So I also believe that sage can be used with respect if you're holding the whole picture. But if you are connected to something, a medicine out of your own lineage, I think that would be the most powerful because your ancestors gather around. As soon as you light that medicine, they're there. That knowing is there. It's in your own, like it's through your system. And it's really powerful. I think that for drumming, it's the same thing. It's like, are you sitting with a medicine person to teach you this? Are you honoring their time? Are you honoring your teacher? Are you naming your teacher? Are you offering them an exchange of reciprocity? That's another huge thing. I think that's really important is that exchange of whether it's money or some sort of gratitude, there has to be that reciprocity. And sometimes that's not there. So I think that I can speak to this because I do mentor some white women in healing, but the ones that come to me are all in. They're wanting to learn about the history too. They're wanting to do the work around the trauma and the pain. And hold it all. So I don't have one answer for all of that. <laughs> very <okay>. different. <laughs> it's very different though from somebody just like swirling around a sage stick on their Facebook ad, right? And I'm just like trying to cleanse the room. Like for me, it's like a very discernible difference. I can just feel someone's committed to the work and someone is just not. I find that's the same way when people participate in my trainings, the inner field trip. I can tell by what they've written, whether they have sat down and actually done the stream of consciousness writing, Mm -hmm. which holds so much significance from a somatic level, from an energetic level, and in someone who is just answering off the top of their head. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell the difference from the intuitive level. And I think that's important to take note of. And as you're mentoring white women to use some of these tools in their own healing, I think you've already answered this, but I'll ask anyways, Mm. how do you ensure that they're not profiting off of this? There was a Canadian woman a few years ago that was offering a certification in Indigenous healing or something, Mm. and she wasn't Indigenous, and she got such huge backlash. I seem to remember that she was in Brantford, Ontario for some reason. Mm. And so how do we invite white people into these healing modalities? Mm-hmm. For me, it's stream of consciousness writing. For you, it's around reconnecting and grounding ourselves with nature and our ancestral beliefs and lineages without profiting. Right. That's such a good question. I would say that the folks that I work with, I mean, the biggest intention is that they are connecting to their own medicine. And that is always the intention, you know, root into your ancestry, root into like that sort of always put there. And we talk a lot about walking in this with the seven grandfather teachings around respect and honor and love and doing all these things in the in that good way. So I guess I'm not the profiting police. I wish that I had. I guess that they learn from me and they learn all of these issues and how painful it is to profit off these medicines. So I'm not sure how I would ensure that to make sure that they don't ever do that. But the majority of my students are very respectful. And when I see them kind of spread their wings and soar, they're really rooted in who they are and what their medicine is. So I ensure that that's really strong part of the training. And then if they're using sage, I guess, in some of their ceremony, then they know where they're getting it from and they'll acknowledge me as their teacher. 
but I've never seen them like sell ceremony or anything. Like I've just never seen that because that's not really the way I teach. So yes, yes. yeah, that can be very harmful. Very harmful. Thank you. Thank you. So as we close this conversation, I mean, there's so much wisdom that you've shared and I've enjoyed connecting with you on this deeper level. Me too. And the question I'd like to end these conversations with is what would be your advice to someone listening in helping them to stumble bravely? Stumble bravely is terminology I use to help us understand that it's not about perfection. It's about showing up. You're going to make some mistakes, Mm. brush yourself off and keep moving. So any tips on how we can stumble bravely in our walk to heal ourselves? Yes, I think it comes back to what I spoke of earlier, having compassion for ourselves, which I think is just one of a really, really hard thing to do. I think that that perfectionism, as we know, that perfectionism comes from that white supremacy kind of energy. I just think compassion is like the medicine for coming back to the work. Because if we mess up as we all do, I do all the time. If I'm hard on myself, then I'm going to stop. And if I beat myself up, then I'm going to stop and I'm going to not go there again. But if I can have compassion for myself that I'm human and that will just help me keep going. So I would say the medicine of compassion is my answer. Oh, I'm just taking a deep breath because this conversation was medicine. Thank you for me too. Oh, thank you, Asha, for being with me and for being in conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I was in conversation with Asha Frost, Indigenous Medicine Healer. You can find out more about Asha, including all the resources mentioned in this episode, by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode six. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely. <laughs>